My name is Luke Butler and you're listening to the Back of House podcast. Mike uh, was unable to join me on this episode today, so he, uh, he's actually a very, very busy man at the moment, so uh, you're stuck with me. Um, uh, today's guest is a gentleman by the name of Ross Jurisic, and Ross is one of the co-founders of Stone and Wood. Uh, and that brand uh, is a personal favourite of mine. Um, their product is a very much a favourite of mine. And the story behind the business is quite inspirational. They've, in the, in, I guess, over the course of ten years, they've managed to grow from uh, very much a startup um, and taken their brand um, almost everywhere. It seems like it's 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 quite rare to go into a pub these days and not see stone on wood on tap. Um, recently saw it overseas in a bar actually, which was which was really good to see. And the story behind how they formed a business. Um, you know, three mates, essentially colleagues, working together for one of the larger players, and decided to go out and do it for themselves. Um, so there's there's a, a lot to like about the way that they did it. Um, so I will also apologise for the sound quality um, up front. This was a fairly opportunistic recording um, at their main brewing facility, um, and. It was a very, very hot day. Didn't have all of the right equipment that we would traditionally have, and uh, we were in a bit of a, a, uh, a site shed at the brewery, and um, very hot, bit of air conditioning going. So I apologise in advance for the sound, but hopefully you take a lot away from the content. So enjoy the chat with Ross Jurisic. All right, so Ross, thanks for uh, joining me. Um, I'll note Mike's not with us today. He's got um, some commitments in Sydney, and he's not here, but... Um, yeah, so look, thanks for joining. No, thanks for coming up. So I guess initially it would be a good idea to introduce yourself, obviously. Yep. We've yep. just introduced you in our words. But um, your role here at Stone and Wood? Um, <clears throat> it morphed into a few different things over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jamie, Brad and I first started out, we all had specific roles and mine was... Um, sales, distribution, uh, a bit of marketing. Jamie's was um, administration, strategy, marketing as well. And Brad was um, very much uh, production orientated. Yep. Although the three of us all worked together and everyone was helping everyone do everything, I guess. Yeah. And so how did you actually start? Well, where did, did your career start in beer or how did you enter, yep. I guess, professional life? Professional beer? Um, Stone and Wood started uh, with Jamie, Jamie Cook, Brad Rogers and myself. We used to work together at Carlton United Breweries, yeah, right. uh, Foster's at the time. Um, was that on specific brands or were you just... Yeah, over time because yeah. I, I was there for 11 years. Uh, Brad was there for about 14 years and Jamie was there for 16 years. So during that time, Brad was um, in the production side of the business. Jamie was um, field marketing and brand marketing and I was in um, sales and marketing. Um, and then just before we left Carlton United Breweries, Jamie Cook was given the job of reinventing the craft beer category for CUB. Um, And he did that with the rebirth of Matilda Bay Brewing Company. Um, He needed to get a team together to pull that off. And uh, he recruited Brad and myself and a few other guys. And um, we... Yeah, we made a pretty good go of that. Yeah. And uh, as CB changed, we had regime change and uh, cultural change, and we figured that 
this wasn't for us anymore and it was time to go and have a crack at doing our own thing. Yeah, right. So what drew you to beer in the first place? Uh, I, I used to work in pubs yeah. uh, before I went and worked at CUB. Was that in New South Wales? Uh, Queensland. In Queensland, Yeah, right. yeah, southeast Queensland. Can you name check the first pub that you worked in? Uh, Pacific Hotel in Southport. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. For uh, a couple of ex-rugby league guys, Johnny Sattler and Bobby Hagen, yeah. um, who were you know big in rugby league, God, I don't know, maybe the 70s or something. Yeah. And... Uh, so what era was that that you were? Gee, I would have been I would have been sixteen or seventeen when I started at the Pacific Hotel. So yeah. that would have been late eighties, um, and then I travelled a bit and I started at Carlton United Breweries when I was 25, 26, and then left to start Stone and Wood when I was thirty six. So, and so that was ten years ago. The just always been passionate about beer. Love beer, love right. the industry, love the people in it. Yeah. You know, uh, um, it, you know, that's one of the things I enjoy most about what we do now is being out in the trade. Yeah. You know, chatting to customers and uh, the industry is evolving so quickly. It's fascinating to be a part of and, and it's good fun. You know, we're working in beer, we're not selling plumbing supplies, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's good fun. How do you, I guess, looking back with the knowledge that you have or the exposure that you had to the larger beer companies, how do you think... Do you think they're feeling the pinch now in terms of the way that businesses like yours and others that have come up um, are potentially stealing market share or uh, I guess maybe have a perceived advantage around how agile you can be from a product perspective? What's your perspective? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of the two big guys, you know, those businesses have changed a lot themselves in the last, you know, few years with Carlton United Breweries being taken out by um, SAB Miller, SAB Miller being taken out by AB InBev, you know, um, and the culture and the dynamic and everything at CUB or ABI now was very different to what it was in the past, but... um, they just see beer as a commodity. You know, it could be, it could be gold, it could be silver, it could be iron ore or coal. You know, that's the, that's how ABI see beer, and they just happen to be trading in a commodity that's called beer. You know, it sounds a bit soulless or what have you, but I don't think too many people would disagree with me on that. No. I- I don't think they would either. Yeah, Lion, Lion Nathan, I think is different. Uh, yeah, right. I think they're still brewers at heart, yeah. and um, yeah, I think they're uh, uh, yeah, beer is their thing, and uh, I think they take a different approach. Um, but at the end of the day, they're up against a pretty big gorilla in ABI, and. You know, it makes life a little bit difficult for them, I'd suggest. Do you, I mean, what is it about their approach that you think is, that separates them from, the, I guess, the more faceless, larger corporations? Uh, I, th- I just think it, it seems to be the culture that they that they still have. Like, you know, James Brinley, the guy who heads up Lion Nathan here in Australia, he's a great guy. He has yeah. a great reputation in the in the trade. Um, he is, uh, he's a beer, yeah, he's got beer running through his veins. That's, you know, I think that's the difference. Right, and but this this podcast, I mean, Mike and I started it really to bring to life the stories behind. Essentially, um, don't know, um, iconic is potentially the wrong word. Yours is obviously, I believe, iconic. But um, 
uh, brands that either either have you know experienced amazing longevity in what is a challenging hospitality industry, mm. uh, or products that have grown really quickly and, mm. and and done you know quite interesting things. Obviously, yours fits in that category. So, what we like to do, I mean, if you could share the the very origin of mm. the business, like sure. how. When did the first? When was the first conversation? Like, when did you guys actually sit down and say, "Hey, you know what? We should." Um, sure. Okay. Our own beer? Okay. So that's uh, that's pretty easy because while we're working at Carlton United Breweries or Fosters, and we we're looking after the Matilda Bay Brewing Company, and we were just saying to ourselves, oh, "This business is heading down the wrong way. We should be doing it for ourselves. We should have a go." Um, and then it was. On the 1st of April 2006, that we sat down um, at the Graves Cafe, De Graves Lane in Melbourne, and the three of us, and we said, are we going to keep talking about this, or actually, are we actually going to get off our asses and do it? So, who's in? Who wants to commit? And we're like, yes, yes, yes. So, from that day... We all committed to it, and that was the start of two years of planning until we took possession of our site in Brony Place in Byron Bay, literally to the month, and we um, it it took two years of planning to pull it off, and um, November 28th of that same year in 2008, we had kegs rolling out the brewery gate. Yeah, right. Yep. That's pretty quick. Yeah, well, we didn't have the luxury of time. So, yeah. we, you know, we'd given up, you know, good paying jobs and we still yeah. had to put food on the table and pay mortgages and this and that. And we, we sold whatever we could and mortgaged everything else that we had to fund the brewery. Um, so and that was totally funded by the three of you initially, or did you yeah. seek investment to actually get it off the ground? Yeah, it was the three of us. We bought in a, uh, a fourth partner, a guy by the name of Tom Mooney, who had um, a bunch of hotels in the Northern Rivers. Right. And um, we knew that we needed an instant route to market and uh, without having a brew pub. Brew pubs weren't really a model back then. Yeah. Uh, well, you could argue that Little Creatures, one in Frio, was you know the one, but there wasn't too many others other yeah. than that um, and we couldn't find the site to do that in Byron so we um, we brought Tom Mooney on and that way we knew that we had an instant route to market and we had good cash flow we knew that he pays his bills weekly etc etc and uh, so we effectively went to stage two initially which was the more of the production brewery right. and, um, and and yeah and off we went and so I guess the idea, idea behind where'd the name come from yep so we've always taken an approach of um, uh, if you don't have a better name or if you don't have a solution to what someone else suggests, well, tough. You know, we're going to run with what someone <laughs> suggests. <laughs> yeah. And um, we were thinking about names and um, iconographies and, you know, all these different types of things. And anyway, Jamie had put a presentation together. He'd been working around the name of um, stone and wood and it was, it was the elements around it that sat well with Byron, uh, he liked the earthiness of it, and um, anyway, he put a presentation together for Jamie and Brad, and and he was thinking, oh, okay, he's trying to figure out all the. He was he was he was doing his sales pitch, selling it to us, right. and we just sat there. I've gone, yeah, no, that looks great, Cookie. Let's just run with that because at the end of the day, we've got nothing better. <laughs> that looks and feels good, so Stone and Wood it is, and yeah, uh, right. and that's how the name Stone and Wood. Yeah, effectively came about. Right, okay. Um, and why Byron? 
Byron is one of those areas that um, celebrates diversity. Um, it's a very loyal, um, parochial, vocal community. Yeah. And um, they've been incredibly supportive of us and, and our business in, you know, from the outset. Um, but we knew that if we are going to set something up, we knew that we needed people who were going to readily um, try it at least and hopefully support it and uh, and we've been very fortunate that they have. So, that was a, so the three of you are living in Melbourne? Jamie and Brad were living in Melbourne. I was still living uh, in southeast Queensland. Right. And um, yeah, so Jamie and Brad moved up to uh, up to Byron. I managed to stay uh, on the Gold Coast because I was travelling around so much anyway. I was on the road, you know, the moment that we set it up. So, um, and you know, it's a, a, it's a beautiful place and if you're going to set something up, you might as well do it somewhere that's really cool because if it all turns to shit, well, <laughs> you're in a good spot for it to have happened, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was the... Uh what was your headspace like in those first six to 12 months? Because I imagine you, you put a lot on the line. Like I said, you've left pretty high paying jobs. Um, I mean, starting any new business is challenging, but one with pretty significant capital investment, I would imagine. Yep. Um, I guess uh, I guess failure was just never an option for us because we couldn't afford to fail. Yeah. Uh, there was no there was no backup plan, so we just had to make it work. Yeah. And uh, you know that was. You know, I don't know what eighteen hours a day, seven days a week, until it, you know, till it, till it worked. We were very fortunate that um, because we had worked together, we knew how each other worked. It's not like we were three mates who decided to go into business together. We were actually three working colleagues right. who decided to go into yeah. business together, and I think that's the difference. We knew how each other worked. We knew each other's working style. Um, we knew each other's values and. Um, so I think that uh, was a big advantage to us yeah. and we had half an idea of what we were doing, yeah. you know, and we don't know how to do anything else anyway. So, um, but back to your original question, yeah, what was it like those first few years? It was, yeah, it was tough because we budgeted to lose money for the first three years yeah. and, um, you know, month in, month out, year in, year out when the P&L just has red all over it. It could be quite demoralising unless you got good, you know, partners to, you know, to lean on and bounce shit off. So, did that get to a point where you thought, you know, is it, have we made the right decision? Yeah, <laughs> I think there was a couple of watershed moments. Um, specifically, remember being down in Sydney, and um, I used to fly down there every fortnight, get to Sydney Airport, rent a car, and then just go and pound the pavement. Right. literally knocking on doors trying to flog beer and um, for about my fifth or sixth knock back that day I remember it was pouring rain freezing cold and I rang Brad and I said oh mate god you know I just had another shit day and blah 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 and god uh, have we done the right thing and he goes oh mate you'll be right 
cheer up. Anyway, uh, yeah, just get back to it. I've got to get back into the brewery, so um, I'll leave you to it. And I was going, oh, yeah, okay, so it's not all that bad after all. Um, but it's great being able to pick up the phone and, you know, chat to the guys. And, and probably the other moment was our very first winter and Brad walked in from the brew house into the little makeshift office that we had and um, it was about Thursday of that week and, and he said, uh, oh, how many, uh, how many kegs have we sold? And I said, oh, I think we're up to about four, mate. And he said, oh, is that today? I said, no, that's for the whole week. And uh, we're just going, wow, okay, it is going to be a bit of a grind, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, that's all history now. Why our times have changed, hey? Mm. Um, finally, I guess the, the, the product, you know, that's what it's all about. I mean, what was the... What was the strategy there in terms of hitting the market? Obviously, um, you've got a you've got a range of different products, two predominantly that sit um, above, I guess, more seasonable brews, seasonal mm-hmm. brews and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where did the products come from? Come from? Yep. Um, yeah, that's an easy one because <sighs> during that two-year planning process uh, that I mentioned just before we we came up to Byron. Um, one night we're sitting in Brad's kitchen in Melbourne and we had sticky taped uh, a bunch of A4 pieces of paper together and um, we had bought about 40 different beers, just singles, and on this big piece of paper that we'd sticky taped together, we plotted what we called the beer meter and um, we started at one end with very light non-bitter styles of beer, something like a Corona, all the way through to a hoppy pale ale at the other end. And then we just drank about, you know, tasted these 40 beers and plotted them on what was our beer meter And um, trying to come up with an idea for the style of the beer that we first wanted to produce. And what we came up with was starting with the drinking occasion first and then working backwards to develop a beer from that. So the drinking occasion was, okay, so we're in Byron Bay, you're sitting on the beach, it's a hot summer's day, uh, you've got the salt water, it's drying on your back and you're going, right, the pub's just across the park there, I'm just going to head over. So you walk up over the park into the beach hotel, you don't have to wear a shirt at the pub. When you walk up to the bar, what is the type of beer that you want to drink? And we conjured up all that in our head and and said, so what is that? And we've gone, okay, so we want it to be um, sessionable where we can have a few of them in one sitting. It's got to be natural. It's got to have some flavour. Um, and it can't be too high on ABV because we want to have a couple of them. And uh, at the time, Brad was experimenting with this hop pretty well unknown hop called Galaxy yeah. and um, and so he was doing some trial brews with that and um, we um, decided you know tweaked it and this and that and 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 came up with that beer that is now called Pacific Ale and it just you know any beer garden in Australia any any summer type environment or um, even if it's a dead of winter you can escape to the summer of Byram in that beer. Totally agree. Do you remember the first time you tasted it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> what was your reaction? Uh, I, I thought it was unreal. Yeah. You know, I thought it was just this most you know, amazing beer and um, you know, Brad's got it, he's got it in tank and we're, you know, we're tasting it every day, every day and then we're becoming like sort of desensitised to it and we're going, oh wow, okay is it, can still feel, taste that passion fruity note to it and 
we've gone, yeah, 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 it's still there, and uh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, I think it's unreal, love it, you know. Uh, because we, at the end of the day, we had to come up with something that Jamie could market, Brad could brew, and I could sell. Yeah. And we needed to get all those three elements to work. And um, I was positive that I could sell it. Brad knew he could brew it, and Jamie knew he could build a brand around it. And um, anyway, I, I remember the first night that we had it on tap was at the Rails Hotel in Byron. Yeah. And um, we're walking around and we're buying beers for people, having people taste them, and people going, oh, mate, this is unreal. It tastes like Pasciona or like Pasito. And it's going, oh, my God, maybe we've gone too high on this whole passion fruit thing. Um, But that was the genius of Brad, pulling those tropical fruit flavours out of that hop because that hop is incredibly delicate. Uh, You don't have to to be too far off centre for that hop to taste really bad yeah, right. and um, he just managed to hit the sweet spot with that hop and and even today people will over hop with it or they'll over dry hop with it and it's you know it can be it can be a shitful hop um, but if you get it just right you pull those flavors out and um, yeah and Brad just did an amazing job with it and and yeah, for when it was called Draft Ale at the time, because it was only it was only supposed to be a beer sold in draft in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, yeah, right. and um, it just really took off. And we're going, wow, okay, I think we should put this in a in a bottle. And um, we said, well, we can't call it draft when it's you know draft means to draw from a tank, so we're going to have to come up with another name for it. Yeah. And um, so we said, well, what's it going to be? It's of no specific style. Um, and we've gone, oh, well, well, let's just, we're as close to the Pacific Ocean as you can get. Why don't we just call it Pacific Ale? It suits where we are. It's our backyard. So let's just run with that. And, and we did. So it was, uh, there was no other reference point for that beer at the time. Was no, it? no, no, absolutely not. And that's why it never, we never entered it into any beer competition or because there was no category for it. Yeah. The first, the first beer competition it went in was the World Beer Cup and the style that Brad chose to enter it in was uh, English Summer Ale because it was what we thought or what Brad thought suited that beer best and uh, we ended up picking up a silver medal at the World Beer Cup for it. Yeah, right. I imagine uh, the sale of Galaxy Hops is... uh improve somewhat yeah yeah it's a really good you know that's a that's a really cool you know customer supply story you know they were just coming out with this hop and we were just starting to brew with it and our business have businesses have grown together through that and um you know the guys from hop products australia do a great job great do a great job with that hop and a bunch of other hops that they have um and today they uh, they grow tons and tons of it, and of which, you know, from the outset, we um, uh, we made up a fair portion of the sales of that hop. But the guys have done such a good job with it now that we make up only a small percentage, which is, you know, which is fantastic. Essentially, ten years now, two thousand eight yep. to yep. late two thousand eight. How have things changed for you and the business um, 
over that time? You know, obviously, you're not seeing much red on the PL these days, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, no, but um, the funny thing is that um, you know, business is always precarious, and um, you never ever get to a point where you can take your foot off the accelerator and go, oh, wow, we've made it, we're here. You know, this, you know, our job is done. Um, business is relentless. There's always new challenges popping up. There's yeah. core cases to fight or there's, yeah. you know, supply of this or that or you may have quality issues or, you know, there's always 101 things that come out of left field at you every week. Um, but we, you know, we enjoy what we're doing and... Uh, it's not just the three of us anymore. You know, there's close to 140 people that work, you know, in the uh, in the business. And um, Jamie, Brad, and I. Uh, sure, we've got a role to play, but yeah. you know, it's those people who come in day day in day out who drive the business and make the business what it is today. So we're very fortunate that we have a great team of people. Um, we think that we've worked pretty hard on developing a great culture yeah. um, of which that group of people have picked up the culture and built on it. So, yeah, um, so yeah it's not just us anymore. So, I mean, do you, do you can you talk us through some of the numbers in relation to production or distribution? Because we just obviously took a pretty good tour through the reasonably new facility mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. um, massive, um, pretty state-of-the-art you know, um, yep. bottling line and canning line and things like that. Sure. Um, how has how have the numbers sort of graduated for you over time from, from start to now? Yeah, we. Uh well, in those first few years, it was you know pretty tough. Um, uh, you know we, we yeah you know, we were growing each year, of course, but it probably wasn't until about the third or fourth year that things really started to motor. Right. And there were I think it was about three years in a row that we grew at a hundred percent year on year. Yeah, right. And did you put that down to anything? Was it was there a catalyst you think that really made? Yeah, I think it was just the uh, one. It was the beer. You know, the style of the beer, and yeah, that was all Pacific Ale. Um, it was the drinker's readiness for something a little bit more challenging than the mainstream, but yep. not too over the top. Um, uh, and we thought that, okay, so we've just gone through three years of 100% year-on-year growth. It's just placing too much pressure on um, on the people, on the brand, on the infrastructure that we have. We're just going to have to slow it back, otherwise we'll just blow the whole thing up. Right. And um, at the end of the day, you, you, know, you just can't keep growing at 100% year on year uh, without large capital injection. And yeah. um, um, we just didn't want to overcook it. So we, we, we had to leave some demand on the table unmet. And um, we just had to be comfortable that that was going to be the going to be the case. I remember it was probably year six or seven, um, we had 3,000 cartons of Pacific Ale for the entire month of December um, because we knew that we needed to supply draft beer. So we said, right, oh, well, let's just let's just allocate this 3,000 cartons right now and then we don't have to worry about it for the rest of the month. So in that first couple of days, we allocated all the beer out, that job was done and there was a stack of purchase orders on our, you know, on our desk that you literally couldn't jump over. But we were happy, we, we were happy with that, we were happy with the decision um, because it's kept us in good stead and allowed us to grow organically um, to a point where we are today. So what would that number look like now? Oh, well, we'll do we'll do about 14 million litres this year. Right. Um, 
So it's, oh God, would have been, back then it would have been six, not even, probably five, four, four or five million litres back then. Yeah, right. And um, and we've grown, you know, we've grown since, but albeit at a, you know, we grew a few years after that, like at 70% and then 50% and 40%. You know, it's coming off a far larger base now, but uh, yeah, we're still, still growing and um, comfortable with our growth rate. Yeah, okay. Um, is it, aside from the product, I mean, is there anything in when you're kind of analysing um, success or um, results that you've looked at and you've thought, you know, maybe it's the brand, maybe it's the location, are there any sort of other parts of the business you think that have been, um, I guess, really critical to your success? Um, I think it was just a long-term view that we've always taken, that right. um, uh, this was never a business that was going to be built up super fast and then flogged off. Right. So if you have a long-term view of your business and um, you're happy to leave unmet demand on the table and you're happy not to, to grow, mm. um, if, you're, if you're happy with those things, the decisions that you make today will be the right decisions for the future. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't think there's any one particular thing that you could put your finger on that says, uh, yeah, that was the reason for the success of it. You know, it was um, the the people that we have in the business. It was um, the readiness of the Australian drinker to take on this style of beer. Um, even things down to uh, the price of stainless steel when we purchased our brewing gear was half the price of what it was 12 months later. Yeah, right. um, we managed to source finance from the ANZ Bank um, just before the GFC. So there's 101 different things that have happened for us, to us, um, over the last 10 years. Um, that have you know, allowed us to be where we are. I guess the other piece is you need a social licence to operate and um, we're very fortunate that we have a very supportive community. Half of our beer is still sold within a three-hour drive of Byron Bay and um, we value that um, that support from our local community and that's why we set up this brewery here in Mwollomba. Yeah. We could have gone to Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane and uh, where it probably would have been easier but um, we wanted to ensure that the community who got us to where we were then were going to reap in the benefit of employment and, and, and on employment through um, freight guys, you know, plumbers, electricians, etc, etc. And um, just being ingrained in our communities um, wherever we operate gives us a social licence um, to have a business here. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned two things there, I mean, sale of the business and, and distribution. I think they kind of go a little bit hand in hand. Mm. I've done some work recently with a, a business that's a, a, a beer company that's based on the other side of the country. And during the process of conversations with them, you know, one of their challenges was actually infiltrating a market on the other side of the country, mm -hmm. given that it is so competitive mm -hmm. in in Sydney, in Melbourne, in, mm -hmm. in Queensland, Brizzy from a craft beer perspective, because there's so many brands popping up. Mm. Um, is that, a challenge for your brand now or is that something that's been overcome? You, do you have much of a footprint over in WA, for example, in terms yeah. of distribution? Yeah. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, in WA, we have beer available there in yeah. WA and South Australia. But, you know, there's plenty of great breweries in those two places, for example, um, that have great beer and yeah. who are supporting their local communities. Yeah. Um, so... 
uh, that makes sense for you know people in those places to be supporting their local brewer and we knew that there would be a lot of breweries coming online over the last you know far out well even since we started and we made a conscious decision that you know half of our beer would be sold within a three-hour drive of Byron um, because if you grow your product too heavily in say Melbourne or Adelaide well, you're not the local brewer when other local breweries set up. So the risk of losing your tap or your shelf space is pretty high. So yeah. you might as well just double down on your own backyard and, and yeah, look after your own communities that are looking after you. So I guess global domination of the beer world is not at the forefront of, what you, of your long-term... Like you, I imagine you get asked all the time whether you're setting up a business to sell or if it's on your, on your agenda. Yeah. Um, there's probably a few other craft beer brands that you could, that I could name, that have the presence that you guys have, um, and probably the volume that uh, haven't been acquired yet. There's mm-hmm. probably there's not many. Um, you said anything was on the table before we started yeah, yeah. talking. Yeah. I mean, and has it ever been? I'm sure you get offered a lot. Sure. sure, it's part of conversations yep. at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there an appetite for that in the future? No, we've... Uh, <laughs> and you're right, we, you know, we've had plenty of offers and we still continue to have offers yep. um, and it can be anywhere from you know, current large brewers to private equity to any number of different finance things. Mm. But uh, we're happy doing what we're, what we're doing. Um, we do intend for this to be a generational business. Yeah, right. um, we... Uh, you know, we've got a great team of people um, who uh, who run the business day to day, and we've always said that a business a business without a succession plan and without direction is a business for sale. Uh, we started ver- very early on um, about our succession plan. Um, we the business has direction, um, then and it provides Jamie, Brad, and myself with uh, um, with the time to do the things that we like in the business Uh, we like creating new businesses and that's why with Tommy Delmont we set up Fixation Brewing Company we've got Square Keg Distribution Business Brad's just started Forest for the Trees which is a farmhouse ale uh, brewery so we like to we like to develop things we like to start things Mm. Um, and you need a creative yeah I guess what Stone and Wood allows us is a creative outlet to do that yeah and um, so yeah there's no need to sell it if we're having fun doing what we're doing mm. and because we don't know how to do anything else anyway. <laughs> um, You've mentioned culture in the business a couple of times. It's something that I talk a lot about um, just purely on the employment front um, in terms of you know competitive, the, the market right now for good talent, whether mm. it be within mm-hmm. your sales team, for example, which I know within the beer sector is really competitive um, but just people working within your business mm-hmm. you know it's obviously it's vital in the current market that you mm-hmm. look after your people mm-hmm. um, that's not um, not every business or business owner is conscious of that but clearly mm-hmm. you are I mean walking around the floor it was it was quite obvious that um, people were really happy to see you and genuinely happy to say mm-hmm. hello as opposed mm-hmm. to just saying hello because you're mm-hmm. you know you're one of the owners well is there a prescribed kind of approach that you've taken to culture or is there a, a 
an ethos or an ideology that you've tried to instill in the people within yep. the business or core values that you kind of ask everyone to live to? Yeah, I guess the key piece is that we wanted it everything, we wanted it to be everything that the big corporate behemoth that we were in wasn't. Right. So we hated all the politics of big corporate business, uh, the feeling of being treated like a number, um, their lack of uh, empathy for the for their employees, and we, we we just wanted it. We wanted Stone and Wood to be everything that that wasn't, and um, we just wanted to take the complication out of things. We didn't ever want to be sweating the small stuff, and uh, and and then so we set about running the business in that in that manner i guess and um valuing people's input and just treating people you know it's that golden rule just treat people how you would like to be treated yourself and um yeah we're fortunate that we've got you know great people who um share the values of the business at, at the end of the day if your values aren't aligned to the business that you're working in um you're not going to be comfortable and that culture will push you out anyway mm. and um it's very much a business of leave your ego at the door because there's you know there's no room for that here and um come to work and have a good time uh, making sure that you're working within what we call your sweet spot yeah. um, and when people are in the roles that they thoroughly enjoy uh, it's not like work for them yeah you know so it's no point having someone who is very numbers orientated in a, in a role where they're on front street in front of people the whole time mm. and vice versa so the funny thing is we have a lot of people who who work here who may have started in different careers but just want to be in beer, they're passionate about it um, and they find their sweet spot within a role you know, within the business. Yeah. It's, it's a topic that comes up often obviously on this podcast for the same reason each time. Um, but it's, it's sustainability and it's not just around, you know, sustainability of products or of a business, for example. It's sustainability of people within mm -hmm. an industry that mm -hmm. is typically, um, you know, from a frontline perspective, can be challenging in terms of the hours that people are working and the sure. you know, mental health issues that come out and all those kinds of things. Yep. Um, you've obviously taken a fairly holistic approach to sustainability here mm -hmm. as well. I think it would be interesting for you to share some of the things that you do from... Um, you know, from a recycling perspective in mm -hmm. the... Because um, I genuinely wasn't expecting to see that. And I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, your use of um, solar, for example, at the facility. Sure. and yep. um, Did you just yeah. shed some light on those yeah. aspects? Um, again, probably goes back to the... So we're talking about environmental sustainability, right? Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about... Um, uh, again... Earlier on, we're talking about the longer-term view of your business. So, if, if you're looking at setting your business up uh, just to flog it off, there's no way you'd implement, you know, the environmental um, things that we have here because yeah. the return on investment is over a long period of time, and the P&L isn't going to be looking that crash hot to to a suitor mm -hmm. if you've pumped a, if you've spent everything on, you know, environmental 
things. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, here at Mwilumba, 95% of our waste is um, is either um, recycled or reused or um, it's just not thrown to landfill or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and that comes down to um, cardboard, plastic, um, glass, etc., etc. But it's... Um, it's not that hard a thing to pull off either. Like our baler that uh, bales up all the plastic that goes off to a plastic recycler, it costs 10 grand, okay? So, um, sure, uh, we didn't have that thing when we first started and I appreciate that smaller breweries today may not be able to afford that right now. But down the track you can. Yeah. Solar, we've got as much solar as we can fit on the roof as we possibly can. The roof just can't take any more weight. Um, and we get about 10, 10 to 15% of our daily power use from, from solar. Yeah. Um, we're looking at um, expanding that with putting like a, um, uh, like a carport over the car park, um, something that we saw the guys at Sierra Nevada in California do. Yeah. Um, we've got a reverse osmosis water filtration system that um, filters our water so we can reuse it for cleaning, etc. Um, uh, we're of the opinion that um, every business needs to have uh, an environmental conscience yeah. you know, to operate. Mm. And uh, that's, that, 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 that's our opinion anyway, and we think that we've only got one planet, we should be looking after it for the generations after us. Um, and the people within our business appreciate that. And, and that's part of their values too. Yeah. Not that we're greenies, like we're not massive greenies, right? We're just we're just trying to do what should be done and yeah. do what. Well, I think if everyone took that right. little step, it would have a huge impact, right? Like if everyone just took the edge off yeah. uh, the, what they're doing, the activity they're doing, the impact they're having. It doesn't take a whole lot. No. This before, but it's my first time, so please ignore the next few lines because they're directed at you. I can't always be waiting, waiting on you I can't always be playing, playing your fool I keep playing your part, but it's not about the current beer market and like very touch touching on it very lightly I guess the differences between the market perhaps when you entered and, and where it is now um, what are your thoughts on the current state of the beer market I mean what, what are you seeing out there uh, it's, it's getting pretty crowded yeah. uh, there's no doubt about that um, we're seeing um, sorry sort of the rise of local yeah. and um, uh, breweries setting up in their local environments and <clears throat> maybe had the ambition for larger wholesale distribution who have retreated back to their breweries and operating more of brew pubs. Yep. Um, I think we'll... Yeah, the, the business, there's still... We're, we're very confident in the category that there is a lot of growth still there. Yeah, you know, independent beer in Australia makes up three percent of the of entire beer volume. So there's a lot of headroom there, uh, and yeah, we still think there's a yeah, there's a lot of room for the uh, for the players currently in the market. We're feeling like uh, yeah, it, it is crowded. Have we reached saturation? Um, probably with the number of breweries, it sort of feels like that. Mm. Uh, but I just 
still think that there's a you know, there's an opportunity to be um, taking more volume um, as a collective group. What approach would you take if you were entering the market today? Do you think? Yeah, um, very different to what it would have been 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think it's very hard to start an operation today without a brew pub. Yeah. Um, and a brew pub, you know, means just, can just mean taps at your venue, uh, but somewhere where you can introduce people to your beers, your brand, you, you know, as, and you and your, you know, people. Um, uh, I think... That also gives you the cash flow uh, to um, to keep the business going. Yeah. The wholesale model is a lot more difficult now than what it was ten years ago, arguably. But then ten years ago, we were still on the on the education of what independent craft beer is or was. Mm. So. Yeah, double-edged sword. It, but parts of it were easier back then, but parts of it are easier today. Yeah. My thoughts on. Uh, on your business in today's market for what it's worth is I think you know a more streamlined product focus for consumers is mm. probably um, more advantageous mm-hmm. I'll go to mainly pubs that will typically have a couple of craft beer mm-hmm. brands and the inconsistency of product on taps is a real challenge mm-hmm. and you see biz, um, breweries with mm-hmm. um, you know, a huge range of different beers, but mm. they're not necessarily readily available in a large number of places. Sure. Whereas, obviously, with your more streamlined product focus, you can probably deliver cut through a little bit more effectively in terms of repetition of the brand being visible in the market. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a fair call. Uh, at the, you know, when we first kicked off, we didn't have the luxury of having, you know, all these different types of beers. Um, yeah. Commercial reality dictates that you need all your raw materials sitting in one beer, mm. you know, to try and make it uh, profitable. Um, uh, even the size of your brew house, we had a 25 hectare brew house when we started because anything bigger than that would have meant that we've got too much beer sitting in tank um, or too much raw material sitting in tank that's unsold that affects your cash position. Yeah. Um, and we're of also of the opinion that. Um, uh, well, we, we just like easier drinking, approachable, refreshing beers, yep. drinks beers. And beer is designed to be a refreshing drink. Mm. And um, we just like the repeat purchase nature of the styles of beers that Stone and Wood has, particularly you know, Pacific Ale. And that's what it was, to go back to the you know, the drinking occasion, that's what it was designed on, yeah. you know, the repeat purchase nature of it. Um yeah, I, I understand that, you know, lots of breweries have a really large range of beers. You know, one of the good things about the category nowadays is that if they do have that brew pub set up, they can sell the beers through there and introduce their drinkers to different styles and what have you. But, um, again, from our old life where everything was so complicated, we just chose a far more simpler approach. Is I mean, the, if you were going to give advice to someone, if someone listening to this who hmm. is contemplating, you know, starting their own beer company, yep. um, have been inspired by your story, for hmm. example, what's the best advice that you would give them? Uh, there's still a lot of room to be original. Yeah. And when we started out, there was no beer like Pacific Ale, like it wasn't a style, it, it wasn't anything. Um, 
and there's still a lot of opportunity for originality out there you know the the limit is only your imagination so differentiation i would suggest would be pretty high on my priority list if i was setting up a brewery today yeah and what's next for the brand uh well we're still um uh we've just had a great summer and um we've you know we're still still continuing to grow um We've uh, relaunched Green Coast Lager. We yep. think there's a real place for good quality independent craft lagers uh, yep. in the Australian marketplace. It's probably a style that's been um, overlooked mm. um, over the last, well, in craft in Australia for quite a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and we think that, yeah, there's definitely a place for it to play. So um, we're giving our Green Coast Lager a bit of time at the moment. Um, our cloud catcher, uh, that Australian pale ale style is um, something that, yeah, drinkers still want to be drinking a lot of. Yeah. And um, we're giving that a bit of focus also. Yeah. And yeah, we'll just continue to you know to increase our, our footprint with Pacific Ale, and mm. yeah, you know, there's still a hell of a lot of people out there who've never heard of Pacific Ale, and in our bubble, your bubble, and my bubble, which yeah. is this craft beer thing, we think everyone's heard of Pacific Ale. But trust me, <laughs> given that eight um, percent of the Australian beer market is craft beer, of which three percent of that or three percent is independent, yeah. there's a lot of beer drinkers out there who haven't heard of Stone and Wood. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. And I guess for you personally, what what do you do outside of beer? What do you spend your time? What are your hobbies? Well, my surfboard's in the back of the car today, but the northerly wind's blowing, so that's going to be crap. Um, Like a lot of guys here, we like the outdoors, um, beach, surfing, everything that the Byron or this region has to offer. A lot of guys are into mountain biking, mountain biking through the hills. Um, but, yeah, surfing is pretty well much, yeah, my thing. Is that – so you're based in Byron now? Yep, yeah, yep, you're yep. Located, yeah, so is that – I mean, are you getting out sort of every day? Do you get the yeah, whenever it's good. Day? Yeah, the bloody northerlies have been blowing for the last uh, last last few weeks, and I'm not sure what it's like other parts of Australia. But when we get northerlies here, it brings in a ton of blue bottles and yeah. sea lice. So we've had a pretty ordinary last few weeks, but uh, every now and then the, the wind will switch to the south, and we're out there. So. questions that we ask everyone that's uh, on the show so mm-hmm. we might just kick into them um, fa- favourite book that you've recently read or any other podcast that you might listen to that you think uh, others might uh, enjoy yeah I just recently read um, a book by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu and yep. um, it's about Aboriginal um, uh, growing of grains and yams and um, uh, you know, when white people first settled in Australia and what they were exposed to. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was just a fascinating read to see how, you know, Aborigines over the last 60,000 years have approached agriculture in this country. Yeah, it was just a fascinating read. Yeah, right. Like Mike actually mentioned that maybe two episodes ago. Yeah. Ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, sounds really interesting, actually. Yeah, cracking read. Um, any podcasts that you listen to? Yeah, probably... Um, there's uh, 
there's one that always has a couple of good interviews. It's called um, um, "How I How I How I Made This." How I built this. How I built this. How yeah. I built this. Um, Kim Jordan from New Belgium Brewing Com- Company was on it recently. Yeah, right. Uh, the guys from Whole Foods is a that's a really good interview. I think I've heard that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a classic. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good one. And then obviously industry ones. Yeah. Um, so the Brewers Association in the US put out one. We'd just like to keep a track of what's going on in the US because we seem to follow their lead here in Australia. So it's right. interesting just to see what's coming out of the US. And yeah, like I said, there are probably a few of them. Yeah, cool. And uh, album or artist right now that you're into? It could actually be like favourite album of all time. Yeah, God, it seems to be Skeggs at the moment because whenever my kids jump in the car, they're um, um, taking control of the uh, of the stereo. Yeah, right. So, so uh, even uh, God bloody my daughter's boy band seem to uh, dominate in the car nowadays. <laughs> Mate, I've got wiggles non-stop. <laughs> I think you win, unfortunately. Uh, Yeah, it gets better. (laughs) I can only hope. Um, And uh, favourite drink right now? Apart, you're not allowed to mention it. Yeah, I know. Gee whiz, I tell you, it's a... um uh, it's been the summer of beer, that's for sure. Yeah, yep. it's been so warm this summer. Um, I just recently tried um, uh, Ben Spoke's new lower ABV beer called Easy. Yeah. And uh, Richard Watkins and the guys down there, amazing brewers. And uh, it's a dead set cracker. It was for a really flavoursome lower ABV beer. Yeah. Um, There's been a lot of movement in that part of the market, hasn't there? I mean, it's yeah. really good quality. Um, mid-strength yep. beers coming out. Yep. I had a throwback IPA the other day that nice. I thought was pretty good. Yes. Um, it. I've always found mid-strengths to be not very appealing because I mean, typically you had pretty average choices. Yep. But, um, it's good to have you know a fair bit of a fair range in that in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Really. You know, people are having fun with them. There's a lot of funny names kicking around with some of the. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's um and yeah, all right. Plenty of Australians are drinking lower ABV beer. Yeah. <clears throat> um, challenge is just trying to get get the flavour right and yeah, but uh, you know, I'm enjoying their beers at the moment. They do a cracking lager as well, and in this heat that we're copping up here at the moment, mm. anything too hoppy is mm. sort of a bit. Uh, a bit of a bit of a mouthful, so yeah. Yeah. anyway, that'll change. It'll, subtly, it'll kick in tomorrow, and it'll be back to hops. Yeah. Um, favorite venue anywhere in the world? Yeah, this will. It's a bit tough because I love spending a lot of time on the road, and I've got some great customers. Yeah. Um, but I would have to say, and I don't think too many of my good customers, who are my mates, would you know take offence to it. But the Oaks Hotel in Neutral Bay would have to be my favourite pub in the whole country. I'm, I'm totally on board with yeah. that. I've been there a thousand times. I always seem to get way more hammered at the Oaks than I do in any other pub for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's just uh, the attention to detail in the maintenance of that pub. You know, they just, uh, you know, the, you walk in and you just go, wow, someone really loves this joint, mm. you know. And, um, yeah, it's the benchmark, I reckon, for pubs yeah. in Australia. Andrew Thomas, who you obviously would know, I believe his father, I mm-hmm. may be incorrect, mm-hmm. still holds inductions for all new staff. Yep. Walks them through the entire building. Yeah. Um, or maybe he did up until recently. Mm-hmm. But um, there's, there's a whole level of detail in that business that you... I don't think you'd find anywhere else. No, I remember the first time I went there would have been 20-odd years ago, probably. Mm. 
and, um, and I remember meeting David Thomas and he said, oh, I'll show you around. And we started in the cold room in the cellar mm. and he was just so proud of the cleanliness of the cellar and he said, good beer starts with good beer lines and blah, blah, blah. And <clears throat> the place was just absolutely spotless and has been ever since. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and finally, within the industry, um, who is it that you're most inspired by? Is there is there anyone? I mean, it doesn't have to actually be in the industry. Hmm. Um, is there anyone that you, I guess, take uh, take a bit away from in terms of maybe the way they operate or hmm. um, just the, the things that they do? Um, I think it's more um, the tenacity um, and resilience of anyone who's doing a startup. You yeah. know, like how I built that's that podcast. The guys who started. Um, Whole Foods, you know, and what those guys went through to start that up. Um, you know, what Steve Jobs went through to get Apple off the ground. And I, I, I think it's a, a personality trait that's, um, that is inspiring to mm. see tenacious um, people who just won't give up. And when they get knocked down, they get back up and have another go and try it differently next time. Or so I don't, I'm not sure if there's a particular person, but it's more those personality styles that uh, yeah that you draw inspiration from. Yeah. And far out, we needed it. You know, ten years ago, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. Well, look, mate. Thanks for sharing the story. Um, still, hands down, my favourite beer. Um, so it was actually it was a real a real privilege to be shown around the facility and to hear the story and I think others will feel the same way. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. So there you have our chat or my chat with Ross Jurisic. Um, I think the really interesting thing to take away from that um, is, is well there's two things. The way the business was formed um, I think is pretty incredible. Um, three guys who went out on a limb and basically put everything they had behind the creation of a brand that they were really passionate about. And obviously, as you heard from Ross, there were, were times, maybe few, but where they, or he questioned um, what they'd done, the decision that they'd made. And um, obviously it's worked out for the best for them. And I actually asked Ross when we were doing a walk around whether he uh, he is actually clocked or whether he um, ever takes a step back and, and is, is stunned by what they've managed to achieve and he was actually really humble in his response and said that um, essentially the answer was no, you know, the, the growth for them has been obviously uh, uh, more uh, tempered than it may seem from the outside so they've kind of warmed into where they are now which is really nice so they're just going about doing their things in a really uh, humble manner and the other aspect of what they've done that I think is um, is pretty amazing is just the organic nature in which they came up with things you know um, even the example of how they came up with the name it was just a suggestion it wasn't overthought they didn't go out there trying to um, sell uh, an idea or a brand or a, or a, um, a concept it was it just came naturally to them which I really quite appreciated it wasn't overthought um, and, and very much their product obviously speaks for itself so coming up next on the podcast we have Johnny Mubarak um, and he is the owner of among um, many other venues he owns uh, Gerard's Bistro up in Brisbane which is a highly acclaimed restaurant um, and Johnny's approach to hospitality is one that I've always um, really admired and respected. Again, the humility that we, he operates with is phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you've enjoyed the chat with Ross and look forward to our next conversation with Johnny.